Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a conversation from the 49th New Director's New Films with The Killing of Two Lovers director, Robert Mishoyan, and star, Clayne Crawford. After a startling opening image of extreme tension, first-time solo director Robert Mishoyan's stark, slow-burn drama never quite goes where you expect. An evocative and atmospheric transmission from wintry Utah, The Killing of Two Lovers is a compact, economical portrait of a husband and father and a compassionate depiction of a family in crisis, which moves at an ominous pace of a thriller. The Killing of Two Lovers is now playing in select theaters. Let's go to the talk. We're very, very grateful to have the director and lead actor on the film, Robert Matoyan and Clayne Crawford here with us. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us, even if it's belated and not in Midtown Manhattan as we had hoped back in March. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. Absolutely. Um, so Robert, uh, before we dive in, I did a little background research and uh, discovered that we share uh, a somewhat common uh, origin story. I grew up in Seaside, California, which is Central Coast, and you're from King City and went to yeah. uh, CUSMUC Monterey, uh, Monterey Bay, right? Which is actually partly in Seaside, I think. Yeah, it, it's basically in Seaside. That's that's really cool. I didn't know you came from there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're not the first uh, person I've discovered. Uh, the director of The Old Guard, Ms. Price Binsward, uh, Prince Bitesward, um, also grew up on the Monterey Peninsula in Central California. So, uh, <laughs> small world. But actually, I found kind of relevant for um, what we'll be talking a little bit about today. And, um, you know, when I, I mean, just to give you a sense of how long I've been a fan of this film. When I first saw it, there was, you know, another film that was kind of deep in my consciousness because we were honoring Laura Dern this time last year. And so I was like, when I saw your film, I was like, oh, my God, it's like marriage story, but make it rural um, and a little bit more intense. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk about, um, you know, setting this story. I think it was in you set it in Utah. And I know that you you worked with the Sundance Institute where the film premiered, um, I think, on the development of it. Can you just talk about finding that location and, and working uh, to really integrate it into the landscape there? Yeah, <clears throat> I'd say writing about uh, where I kind of live is pretty critical in, in my process of, of filmmaking. And Clayne and I are actually working on another project that we were attempting to get off the ground. And I have recently in the last uh, five years now moved to Utah. And there's a painter, Brian Kurchisnik, who I met through a few friends that had a studio down in this little town of Kanash. And I just needed to go somewhere where I could not procrastinate. And they were like, you gotta go to this place. There's not even a store. Like you can't even, I had to bring my food in kind of thing outside of this little mercantile. Um, and so I was down there working on this project and, uh, you know, I would walk around to kind of get a little bit of exercise and relax the brain. And I passed the red brick house in that movie, which is funny. It wasn't like it was far away. It's like two blocks over from, from the place, but I took a picture and I sent it to Clayne and I said, you know, this is where we're making this movie and this is where your character lives. And I started to talk to him about this couple, um, and it was really interesting because after I, the, the studio manager 
came over and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about this film, about this couple. I started to explain this, this idea that I had for him. And he literally just pointed like this across the street. And he's like, there's the husband and two blocks or two houses down. He's all, there's the wife. And I was like, no way. And that, that felt like, you know, sometimes you look for signs in the universe to tell you to proceed. And that felt like, oh, this has to happen. So I finished that other project and then jumped right into kind of writing this one. And uh, Clayne, I mean, David is just, I mean, such an incredibly compelling character, but on both ends of the spectrum, right? Like he's, he's totally lovable and completely terrifying at moments. I'm wondering how you guys work through the balance of, of creating that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think with, with life, that's kind of how we are as humans, you know, we're capable of extremely horrific things and, and then great kindness, you know, and, and at the same time. And I think a lot of times we, that's lost in cinema. Um, I think characters are sometimes kind of put into these categories so that we can tell this story clean and concise and this guy's going to wear a white hat and this guy's going to wear a black hat. So we have a clear understanding of who's bad and who's good. And, and, and I think it's a little more complex than that. And I think Robert and I both have always been drawn to that sort of storytelling. Um, so, you, you know, I mean, when I first read this material, I think Robert, it, it was a short, right? We had, Robert had created this short and it was this story about a father just going to pick up his children uh, from a situation where mom and dad <clears throat> have split ups and she's got this new boyfriend and it turns into an argument outside and the boyfriend ends up coming outside of the house kind of thing. And Robert just started to build on that and I thought it was crucial to show how much he loved his children. And that was the catalyst for his insanity. You know, he wasn't this malicious person. He was essentially losing his grip on reality and everything that he kind of held dear. Um, and then it didn't help that it was at, you know, at the cost of this uh, good looking man, you know, and, and kind of at home with his boys and, and his daughter and, um, so, yeah, it, it gave me a lot to play with, which was exciting, you know, as an actor, for sure. Yeah. And Clay, you've also directed and, and, and Robert, you've written so extensively. I'm wondering how collaborative that got. I mean, clearly uh, there's a there's a director on this picture and, and, and that's Robert. But I'm wondering how, you know, that collaboration may have worked with your experience. Um, you know, here's the thing for me, I was just a fan of Robert's work. I mean, we met at Sundance. Was it 09, Robert? Were you up there with, uh, Jack the Rabbit? 2010. 2010. So we met and I'd read a script of his Nebraska that we really wanted to make. And, um, to answer the question, I, I have, I have directed, um, I'm not very good at it. Uh, so when I had the opportunity to make my first film from a financial standpoint, um, it, there was just no confusion. I wanted to work with Robert. I, I'd always told my wife that Robert could shoot a salt and pepper shaker. And if he shot it the right way, he could create a love affair between these two, you know, that was forbidden. Um, and I, I, so I went into this with complete confidence, which I don't always get to do as an actor. Sometimes you have to think about the big picture because you have, you begin to lose confidence in your leader. Um, that was, that, that, that wasn't the case with this. You know, I, I've said I've only twice this has happened and once was with Robert and the other time was with uh, Ray McKinnon on Rectify that I was allowed to go into work every day and just focus on what was on my plate and, um, and to live up to the material and, 
this structure that we had kind of created um, and, and just making sure that I was, I, I was on par with it, with everyone else. So yeah, it, my experience as a director did not come into play. If anything, I was just kind of taking notes the whole time. So <laughs> pretty high praise there, Robert. Uh, is that mm-hmm. check out on your side? Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I've worked a lot with non-actors um, and this was a real exciting experience for me to get to like, look at the, the boundaries of, of a- actors who have just this like tool, you know, this toolbox. A lot of times when you work with non- non-actors, your effort is to really get a performance to about where they are in real life. Mm. So it's an interesting thing approach. And it's something that I actually appreciated now looking back on, on having made films is I, I was learning this process with, with Rodrigo to make, to make people's true self appear on camera, right? So what was interesting in getting an opportunity to work with Klain is we talked a lot about David and because he's, he, he has this talent and this, this bag of, of tools that he can pull out, I, I'm not trying to coach Klain into this performance. We're creating David. And that was really like exciting because for, for me, it was really, I think for both of us, but it was finding that thing that felt very real, just like non-actors. And then you have this actor who then can create that character and then work within that, that realism. And that was kind of neat to me. I mean, one of the things that, that shocked me a little bit with God Bless a Child, nobody believed I, that I wrote a script. They were like, no way, you didn't write a script. It's not possible, you didn't write a script. And I was like, I did. And they're like, no, you didn't. And so it was this weird, I like, as a writer, I'm, I was like so offended. Right? <laughs> so then so then we go to, to make Killing of Two Lovers and I'm like, these are all known actors. They're all really amazing. And this, no one will question that. And then we were somewhere and they're like, well, how much is actually written? And I was like, what? <laughs> You guys improv this entire movie. Yeah. And that was just, uh, I had to, in this context, take as a compliment that we had successfully made the character so believable that people believed that what was being said was, was real. And uh, so I, I since took it that way, but I really was like, there's no way people are going to not, not think there was a script here. <laughs> I was like, it's clean. Come on. I mean, <laughs> yeah. knowing, knowing yourself that you had written this script and written, you know, a really, you know, well-researched, thought out one and then have people believe that it doesn't exist. I actually think that's probably the highest compliment you could get, right? You know, that, that it is so believably real. Hi, I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Film Comment Letter is a new weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing, including features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more, by Film Comment's editors and contributors. Last week's letter featured an essay by Shawnee Enelo on the use of Shakespeare in Nomadland, a review of Michael Koreski's new book on the enchanting powers of movies and memory, a special playlist inspired by the Moroccan concert doc Trances, and some exclusive viewing recommendations. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to get the letter every week. Support independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. There, there are some characters in the film that I find um, equally as compelling as, as the humans you see on screen, and, and that is the, the light and the sound in the film. I mean, it is just a knockout and, and one personal heartbreak that at this exact moment, folks won't be able to see it on a big screen with 
great stereo sound. Um, you know, eventually, hopefully we can invite the film uh, when we get our, our theaters back here. Um, but talk both of you a little bit about that. Pro I mean, literally, I mean, just blew me away. And, and Clayne, I almost thought that, you know, they, they were almost scene partners for you in some ways, which you couldn't know as you were acting them, but how much of that were you potentially conscious of as you were working on set, knowing what might be coming in, in post-production, especially with the sound? Um, as it related to sound, Robert had kind of given me an, an idea of what they were going to do. You know, for me, um, the truck became another character, right? Mm -hmm. That was kind of his sanctuary. Um, and I think some of that built to the sound design because I mean, Robert, there was what, like 134 door shuts in this film. Um, so the slamming and opening of these doors, it just seemed to fit, you know, uh, to kind of create, to kind of build that into the sound design. Uh, but as it relates to the image, again, Robert and Oscar had kind of discussed, you know, because we had economic restrictions, you know, on this film and we didn't want that to, we didn't want the film to be a reflection of that. We wanted everything to be a conscious choice and, and, and just kind of, Robert seeing his storyboards and understanding that he was creating a living frame um, for us to kind of live within that frame. Uh, for an actor, it was almost, it was the closest thing I've had to being on stage mm. to where you could, there was, there was no worry about, okay, I need to, you know, as an actor, you have to kind of pace your performance, even, even in each individual scene, not just the arc over the picture, you have to, you have to be aware of when they're going to come in for close-ups and you don't want to blow it all on the big wide, you know, and you have to kind of have an understanding of the way they're going to cut knowing that Robert was going to allow these shots to breathe. Um, it allowed your motor to really get going. You know, a lot of times as an actor, it's like a Ferrari in downtown traffic, you know, it's just zoom, boom, zoom, boom. And with this, you were really able to get the motor running, especially in the fight sequence at the end of the film. Um, I, mean, I think that was what a 17 minute take. So there is no, after you say your first line, you know, it, everything else is out the door and you're just allowing the impulses to come to you, knowing what the dialogue is going to be to kind of express that. And, and that was a luxury that you never get on set. Um, so I think it played into some of these, what I feel are just incredible performances that coupled with the amount of rehearsal that we did for each individual scene. Well, if nothing else comes out of this uh, Q&A, I think a Ferrari in rush hour traffic as a metaphor for the process is a keeper, man. I have not heard that before. You may have taken that from someone, but that's excellent. I, that is very vivid. <laughs> Robert, you know, I, I had another conversation as part of this series um, with the directors of Boy State. And I'm also thinking of what Chloe Zhao was able to do with Nomadland. And, you know, these, the impression that there are no stories of these overlooked locations, people, lives um, that are li lived, I guess we're mostly talking about rural and middle of the country. But if you could just talk about, I mean, you have extensive, you know, writing and directing experience. What compels you and, and you're living now, I mean, you grew up in, in King City, which I, I know is, is, you know, not the center of what people think of as California and have a similar experience with that. What compels you to, to tell these stories and, and to make them so, you know, um, so central to your practice, I guess? Yeah, I mean, King City plays a massive role in that, you know, growing up, I think at the time when I was born there, it was about 5,000 and then eventually 
I think it's 11,000 now. It might be a little bit bigger than that. Wow. But that impacted, you know, I experienced where people, I would say I grew up in a small town and people were like, oh yeah, me too. And then it would be like Chico, California. And I'm like, that's 30,000 people, yeah. you know, but they considered that small. And then, then the same thing, you know, I, even now when, when uh, I talk to people about where I grew up, you know, they're like, where is that? And then I, you know, I have to say, you know, close to Monterey and then they go, oh, that's really great. But I grew up in the Salinas Valley for me to even, you know, to even mention Monterey is like offensive to me because there there are rivalries between those areas, you know, and there's definitely like not even close in the type of people and and uh, who live there. So this is this constant like really most of the time people only know King City if they got a ticket driving from San Francisco down to Los Angeles, right? Which I fully have. <laughs> it's that place you just... Yeah. yeah, and so there's this forgotten element to it, even though Steinbeck was born there, right? And that, you know, the grapes, you know, his writing is about this area. There's still this forgotten element there. And I think that impacts me. I think I, you know, the, I loved growing up there. I loved my friends who lived there and the community was imperfect completely imperfect, you know, wrestled with the immigrant issue on field workers against like first, second generation Latinx people. It was complicated. It was very complicated little town with good intentions. And I, I think that impacts greatly my writing because oftentimes we're not represented well on screen. You know, like I'll read scripts sometimes and it'll be like the characters, your typical redneck. And I'm like, gosh, that's, that becomes a really offensive term and it's used to just like disregard the layers of a human. Um, and so I think in many ways, I like to write about that era or that, that people, one, because I come from there, but one, because there's, there's rich material. I mean, there's very interesting stories within that community that I think are important to, because I think, again, we can have this, this microcosm that, that, you know, tells a lot, you know, ends up being macro that somebody referenced to me one time that, you know, they're because my story had come out and I, you know, my response to them is David and Nikki would never be able to write a $25,000 check to a lawyer ever. You know, like that's not an option. I know people who work through their marriage because they couldn't afford the, the, the cost of divorce. Um, and that's fascinating to me. I mean, it's like, wow, <laughs> what situation are you in that that's the reality? So I'm very interested in that richness. Um, and I hope in a way that it's like uh, people, people who live in these type of areas feel like they're, that I'm telling their stories, that they, again, they feel heard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, um, <clears throat> you know, can't help but remark that, you know, the way this film, you probably had a plan for this film, right? <laughs> Back in January. And, we, you know, we were part of that um, to, to bring, welcome you here in New York and, I'm just wondering how 2020 has changed your perception of the film. And, um, you know, I'm sure there was a certain amount of, of disappointment at first, um, but, you know, perhaps there's also a chance for this film to explode in ways that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. But yeah, just your impressions on where, we're, where we are now versus where we started, um, what feels like a long time ago. Yeah. It, that was really challenging. We were lucky enough to premiere at Sundance, which was a dream, a dream of Clay and I's like 10 years ago. So it's like, we got to live that dream and then it just like COVID hit. And again, 
your new director's new film was also one of the things on my list. I posted yesterday, you know, when I was in grad school, I dreamed of, of having work in the MoMA and being able to be associated with the MoMA. The dream happened and then it was taken away. And I was like, that's not, what? And oh, then I'm so excited. Here, you're, you're still here. I'm, I'm sitting in the building. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I was so excited to, again, get, get the email. But what was really challenging for us was we had friends who had films at South by that just like premieres were just like taken from them. So I've, I've have felt consistently in this weird conflicted space because I feel that we were blessed enough to get to have this premiere at Sundance. And I know people who didn't get to have their premieres. So it, it was hard to have this sorrow and be like, oh my gosh, this is like the best thing I've ever made. This culmination of Clayne and I, you know, the first day on set, I was like, what if we hate each other? This is so weird. We've been friends for 10 years, talking about working together. And we go, you know, take one. It's like, nope, let's go home. I'm going home, we've been working, <laughs> you know? So to find out that that was real and, you know, it was like the energy was there and that the, what we had dreamed of happening was happening. It is very difficult to kind of not have, but I, I have to constantly focus on my friends who just didn't get premieres. Where we're at, I, to be honest, I really, I really don't know, you know, um, and it's a little bit scary in many ways because independent cinema was already struggling. Um, and it was struggling. And, it, and it's, in my opinion, it's not a struggle that people don't want to hear these stories. It's a struggle whether those who are having a position to present those films on a large scale will care enough to make the effort. And that's when you're in the independent world, you're trying to make stuff to tell these you know, big studios, like these stories matter and, and people do want to hear them. And if you play this in a theater and, you know, in Lincoln, Nebraska, people will go watch it. I promise you they will. Um, and you're making these pleads in the process of making these films. Like, can we make it so good <laughs> that you're willing to take a risk on us? You know, there's small margin of errors for independent cinema. So COVID hitting is, that's, that is scary in, in the independent market. I, I'm trying to remain optimistic. Independent started to look at, 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 you know, video on demand as a, as a way to kind of be reborn. And there's a lot of optimism there. And I still hold that optimism, but when they're going to dump, you know, Wonder Woman on HBO, you're just like, okay. So <laughs> if, if, if this start, if, you know, if the studios move into this market, it's like, you know, I criteria needs to like hold the mantra and be like, we're going to support independent cinema somehow, you know, somebody has to, we need somebody to help. And that, that's my apprehension. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got your champions out here in the field and, and we're happy to be one of them. Uh, many of us are, you know, we're, we're launching streaming services, right? Um, because that's not, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an analog movie guy. I, I, I much prefer to do this in person um, on stage. Um, and I promise we would have bottles of whatever you're drinking there, Clayne. To <laughs> uh, my wife's homemade kombucha is, uh, is, is, is what I'm drinking here. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that for the canteen here. Um, so this is new directors, new films. I'm just wondering, as a final question, what's up next for both of you, since uh, everyone's going to be looking forward to uh, your careers as they flourish, which they will. Klein, maybe we start with you. What's up next for you? Uh, Robert and I start shooting Monday, our second oh. film together. Fantastic. So it's yeah. one, one 
one shot answer you both are working together are you are you is it uh on location again or is this uh where you well we were we were going to shoot in utah um we we this is a story that we robert and i wanted to tell i mean this might have been outside of nebraska this was one of the first films we were going to try to make um and and after after the killing of two lovers you know i mean because we shot that in december of 2018 so it's been almost two years, right, um, since that journey. And we were both just itching. And, um, and when we sold the film, we had signed a deal, you know, but everyone was so hesitant to kind of shoot in COVID. And Robert and I just felt that it would, there's an element that would come through. Um, and this story kind of fits, ironically, in a world um, I mean, Robert wrote the script in t- 2008 after the economic crisis. And it felt like now, you know, it's about a man, a husband and wife that moved to a rural community and they're trying to start their life here and, and find a way of sustainability. And how can they um, kind of learn to live off the land in a sense while keeping their nine to fives, but starting to learn how to can and garden and so forth. And it, it, it seems more relevant today uh, than it did when we were wanting to make this 10 years ago. So um, we're excited and we're going to shoot it in Alabama, which is where I have a farm out here. Um, and we kind of made that pivot at the last minute. Um, but I think it's going to suit the film really well. And, and, and we're, as Robert kind of was saying, you know, you look for these signs, um, because everything is telling you do not make a movie right now. And we continue to just try to open ourselves up to the universe. It's like, if this is going to put anyone in danger, if there's any chance that we're not going to be able to continue and, and finish this film, then please kind of. And everything has just been shoving us in the direction to go make another movie. So I, I'm extremely excited. Um, I, I feel like throwing up talking about it right now, but I'm, I'm definitely I'm excited about uh, starting. I mean, Robert flies here on Friday, day after Thanksgiving. So we're ready to jump in. Yeah. That's actually really inspiring news. So um, kudos to you both. And, and thank you both, Robert and Clayne, for joining us here. Congrats. And we can't wait to welcome you to New York and, and show this movie on a big screen someday. So yeah. thank you both. Congrats again. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. See you.